0: Welcome again. Thanks for being at Grace. We're actually being joined uh, this morning by our other campuses, uh, Grace Point. Great to have uh, you with us, and then also Bloomville, and uh, we also have Paul uh, tuning in as well. We're starting a new series today, and the series is The Struggle is Real. And as we go through this series each Sunday… We will have a a real-life story of somebody inside our church family and how they've struggled through the topic that we're talking about. And so we're really jazzed about it. We're excited. And today, the topic is parenting. So we're going to look at what God has to say about parenting, realizing that uh, when it comes to parenting, it, it can be a struggle, especially in today's day and age. We'll get to that in a moment. But the first thing we get is that kids are precious, right? I mean, we all instinctively know that. Kids are precious, and, and we have this desire to protect them. And not only our own kids, we have a desire to protect other kids as well. It just, it just comes with us. And that's why, for example, that, that we as a group uh, here at Grace, that we support orphans in, in other countries like Thailand and the Central African Republic, and it's also the reason that we support ministries or, you know, there's a ministry that we feel so connected to. We give them like special status around here, and that is Heartbeat Hope Medical, a crisis pregnancy center. And, uh, and we just love them, and, and we are tuned into them. A lot of our people are involved in that ministry. They actually have a, a big fundraiser coming up in a few weeks, I think October 24th. But... Uh, we are so appreciative of the work they do because the most vulnerable set of people in our country today are children in their mother's wombs. They have no rights, and their lives can be ended, terminated at any time at the wish of their mother. And, uh, and so we're working uh, to make a difference in that area, and we very much appreciate, as I said, Heartbeat Hope Medical in doing that. Also, before I get started, I want to let you know that there is a parenting class coming up that I'm going to lead. It's a week from Wednesday, October 11th. It'll be at 7 o'clock, and there'll be more information about that in, in the bulletin next Sunday, and we're excited about that. As, as many of you know, Pam and I, about 27 months ago, Pam and I had zero grandkids, and now we have four and so, uh, it's happening kind of fast. Uh, uh, just uh, three months ago, uh, one was added. This is, <laughs> isn't, she, isn't she cute? Uh, <laughs> this is Gemma Elise Wookie, and, then, and, and the family there as well. That's, that's my daughter, Brienne and Jake, and, uh, and Aria. And then, just this last Wednesday, Weston Timothy Pinkerton… Uh, was born. We were introduced to him, and uh, there, there's the happy family there. And I, I started kind of doing the math on this because I've realized, you know, in 27 months, our, our grandkids, they've doubled. And so, as I started realizing that they keep increasing at that rate, by the time I'm 70, Pam and I will have 171 grandkids. <laughs> and so, it's like the pressure is on. I don't know how you prepare for that, but uh, we're going to try to be ready for the onslaught. And uh, we're we're excited about that. And I got to tell you, when it comes to parenting, as the father of three grown children, who by the grace of God have all uh, all want to they they love love God and want to serve Him, and then they all three married uh, spouses who also love God and want to serve Him, follow Him. And it's just a a huge blessing. And then when I see this next generation coming, it has so focused me on on parenting and making sure that we are applying God's principles of parenting in today's day and age. Because today, in a lot of ways, it's a a struggle like it's never been before. Well, we have a, a story that I wanted to uh, share with you. It's, it's by some friends of, of many of ours, uh, Ed and Willa, and I want, to, want you to hear what they have to say.
1: Hi, I'm Ed Spriggs, and this is my beautiful, fun wife, Willa. And we've been uh, attending Grace since 1999, and we've been married for 30 years this coming October time.
2: We have four adult children. Um, Our oldest son is from Ed's first marriage. We have two boys and a daughter, and we recently have one granddaughter.
1: The struggles of raising a family uh, didn't really become a reality for me until around 1999 when I came to know Christ as my Savior. Uh, Prior to that, I felt the weight of the responsibility of having a a wife and children, but the struggle of raising children really fell largely on Willa. Once I came to know the Lord as my savior, uh, that's when the struggle of leading a family really uh, became a reality for me. More than anything in the world, I wanted my kids to know and to love and to serve Jesus. One of our common prayers for our kids was that they would always get caught when they were doing something they shouldn't be doing.
2: One Sunday morning, we were getting ready for church, got a phone call from the police and one of our sons was down at the police station. Ed was in the shower at the time, I just went in and said, hey, one of our boys is at the police station, you need to go pick him up.
1: Yeah, my son, was picked up for underage drinking and uh, he had fallen asleep in a parked car uh, when the police rolled up on him. But uh, on the way to pick him up, I just began praying because I knew that once I saw him, I was gonna wanna say things that would be destructive rather than helpful. Needless to say, it was a long morning for both of us. Once we returned home, that afternoon, it came time to have that dreaded dis- dreaded conversation. And I wish I could say that uh, tempers and uh, emotions were kept in check, but they were not. Uh, harsh words were spoken and tempers flared. But in the end, I can remember saying or yelling at my son that I love you. I love you, I love you, and I have a decision to make. Either I can fight for you, or I can let you go and let Satan have his way with you. I can remember a faint mumble that said, fight for me.
2: In our house, we would have to have the conversation sometimes that church was not optional. in Joshua 24, 15, it, it says that as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. There were times when we would go to church and our son would sit alone. And as a mom sitting there watching that, that was just a very difficult thing.
1: Yeah, I remember Joe uh, on his last night of youth group saying that he hated us for making him go. But he told us and the whole youth group that it was the right thing to do. And he glad we did. Nothing your students doing is more important than being in church learning of the love and the grace that God has for them, not baseball or football or hunting or fishing or band or anything else involved in. If God's not a priority in your life, you'll never make him a priority in their life. Don't be surprised when they reject your casual Christianity Uh, Once they graduate, even though parenting is a struggle and it definitely is a struggle spend time leading your family because nothing else you're doing is more important.
0: Isn't that good stuff? Let's face it um, Parenting today is a struggle and in a lot of ways Parenting today, our our kids are faced with obstacles today and challenges that would have made our parents head spin. I mean, just, it's just tougher. Today, kids have 24-7 access to the whole world in the palm of their hand. And add that, with those technological advances that make all that possible, and and not, not for good most of the time. And you add to that the the struggles that have always been there of uh, substances, drugs, uh, sex, violence, you know, whatever uh, kids have always dealt with. And and not only that, then the toughest thing is as we're teaching our children uh, the principles that we believe in, it's like we have this entire culture out there teaching our children the exact opposite thing. And that makes parenting today different, I believe, than it's ever been before. It's more of a challenge, and and it's even more of a reminder that we need to get laser-focused on exactly what God has to say to us in this area of parenting. And that's exactly what we're going to do. And and we're going to find that in Ephesians chapter 6. The world is moving so rapidly around your kids that, that you as parents, you, you've got to be on your A game. Uh, the, the stakes couldn't be higher, we need to get this right, and, and you need to, to, to really zero in. And first of all, I, I want us to see exactly what God has to say about parenting. We could talk all day about philosophies and styles and everything else, but where it is all grounded is the Word of God. What we can take to the bank is what God tells us, and and maybe the best place that we get that instruction is in the New Testament is in Ephesians chapter 6. And the context here in Ephesians is Paul's writing this letter to first century uh, Christians to, to church a church that will be passed around to other churches, and he's assuming that, that children are hearing this. He's writing this, and, he, and as he writes this letter, he starts singling out and focusing on different groups of people within the church. And as he does that, he singles out and focuses on both children and parents. And the first thing that he mentions is an, are, are instructions to children... And I want us to see that, Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. And we'll get to the next verse in a few moments. So first, children, and, and then later it goes to fathers, but Children, obey your parents. The New Testament actually records, it says obey, and then he says honor your your father and your mother. And that honor your father and mother is a commandment from the Old Testament that the New Testament records Jesus quoting that commandment five different times. This is not one of those. This is Paul talking. But Jesus, and, and one thing you need to know is every time Jesus does it, he's speaking to adults. And he's challenging them in their relationship with their as adults to their parents. So you just got to know that. But here, the New Testament is focused on children. And, and the Greek word here is technon, and it really means children. It's not so much talking about age, but the context says that this, when he's saying this word, it's children that are growing up within the home. So children in the home, they haven't grown up yet. And now he's giving them this instruction. There's also the implication here that as this letter is read, children are there hearing it. So they're at church hearing God's Word and God's specific instructions to them. And then when they get to that instructions, it starts with this, obey. Obey your parents. And and Paul is calling them to action. He's calling them to obedience. Obey your parents in the Lord. And that is basically saying that children in the home should obey their parents, Colossians says, in everything, that basically we would obey our parents in everything, unless, in the Lord, unless it's specifically going against a specific command that God is giving us. Anything that's not morally wrong. So sons and daughters who are living with their parents. How you submit to the authority of your mom and your dad is really how you submit to God. Because God is saying this. God is is putting this direction on you. And that's how we take it as Christians, when we're underage and living in our parents' home, it's our duty as we follow God to obey our parents'. And, and sometimes that's obeying our parents who are not believers. We obey. That's what God is calling us to do. And then it says, honor your parents. Obedience is emphasizing action. Honoring is emphasizing attitude. And so we honor our parents, and then he, Paul uses a quote from the Old Testament, and it's the fifth commandment. And there's a… among scholars, there's a very interesting discussion and debate on this because we all understand that the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue in the Old Testament, that that's really divided into two segments. The first half really has to do with our relationship with God. No other gods before me, don't take my name in vain. You know, those types of keep God first. It's our relationship with God. And then the second half of the commandments… have have to do with our relationships with other people. Don't lie, don't steal, don't uh, commit adultery, don't covet. It's how we're interacting with other people. And then in the middle, commandment number five, four before and five after, in the middle of the commandments is this honor your father and mother. And when we first see that, we think, oh, this begins the instructions on how we deal with other people. But as we see the Ten Commandments being split up by authors like Paul and others in places like Romans 13 and other places, it seems like a lot of biblical thinkers were thinking that this number five stood in a category all its own, that really this is part of how we relate to God. Because how we interact with God as a child, as we grow up, starts with, our, with our, placing ourselves under the authority of our parents who are to teach us how to interact with God. And so in biblical thinking, the debate is, hey, this commandment number five, does that, is that part of how we relate to God? Or is commandment number five, honor your parents, how we relate to people? And the answer is yes, yes. It's really both. It's in a unique position And you just have to know that because it stands out and and tells us how important this is to God. It's about our relationships to God and to other people. So teens, and most of them are in another room right now, how you submit to your parents is reflective of how you're submitting to God you can't even really tear those two things apart from each other. Then Paul points out, which was part of the Old, old Testament commandments, that this is the first commandment with a promise. And what, what he means by that, although there's a, an earlier than the fifth, there's another commandment that, that talks about issues, it's really not a promise… Commandment number five is the first commandment that we're given that has a promise. And originally, this promise had to do with, hey, you'll live long in the land that God is providing for you. But here, Paul quotes that, and through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he leaves that part out and he sort of universalizes this command and says, no, it's just not for the Jewish people as they live in the land. It's for all people that we would honor our parents. And then the promise as Paul states here is basically that generally life will go well for you if you honor your parents. Now, when first century parents read this, they didn't think that this was a, a guarantee against something you know happening to their ch- childhood diseases or anything like that. What they saw this as a general principle that as children submit themselves to their parents and honor their parents, that it would go well with them that we obey and we honor. Now, for children, the best way to do that is obedience. And, uh, and for adults, the best way for us to honor, uh, we can honor our parents in other, other ways. We're no longer in obedience to them, but our attitude has to be respectful to our parents as, as grown children. We, we need to maybe respect them by asking them for advice, uh, communicating with them, talking with them. Scripture has a lot to say about us. Our responsibilities to our parents as adults is that we would care for them in their old age, make sure that they are taken care of. But part of that is just being part of their life and interacting with them. That's what God calls us to do. That's what Jesus is talking about several different times in the New Testament. So, Adults honor their parents in those ways, and children honor their parents primarily through obedience. And so, God's instructions to children are pretty clear, pretty cut and dry. Obey and honor. Action and attitude. And now, Paul moves on to parents. But even though, and so now it's instructions to parents, but even though before when he told the children, obey your parents, that's mom and dad… Now when he gives instruction to parents, he really zeroes in on the father. And we see that in verse 4 where it says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And so he focuses on on fathers here, which is interesting in our society today. Because today, whether it's a two-parent home or a single-parent home, Typically, the person who takes the lead on discipline and instruction is who? Today, it's usually the mom. And here, God, through Paul, is challenging us dads to step up and take the leadership on the discipline and instruction of our kids, that that's our job, that we are to take the lead on that. And really that we're supposed to point our kids to God. I just heard a statistic a, a few days ago that said when we want the best for our kids and ultimately we want them to follow God, that said when there's a family and, and none of them know God and a child comes, becomes a Christian, there's a 3.5% chance that the whole family will then subsequently come to Christ. When a mom in a family becomes a Christian, there's a 17% chance that then the whole family will follow Christ. When a dad is the first one in the family to become a Christian, there is a 93% chance that the entire family will come to Christ. Isn't that amazing? God knows something here, that our culture has forgotten that God is telling us is just part of how the family structure as God created it is. He's just giving us the reality of God's structure. So He gives this commandment to fathers, that word to take the lead. And and why not moms? I, I don't know. Maybe moms don't need this reminder. What Scripture keeps telling us in opposition to our culture, is our culture keeps hammering male and female, no difference, sexuality, no difference, none of this matters. We're all people. But what Scripture keeps telling us, we're all equally valued, we're all equally gifted, we're all equally important, but there are differences between men and women. And, and we need to recognize that. As a matter of fact, here, here's what I've experienced. So, we have two new babies, right? So, Pam and I, I realize that we react differently. And this is… This, just came to my mind just a couple of days ago. When an infant starts crying uncontrollably, my wife Pam moves toward that sound, where I instinctively head the other direction. You know, I don't know why that is. I think it's just the way God has wired us up that we react differently to those kinds of things. So maybe moms don't need this. But God is clearly calling fathers to get engaged and take the lead on the discipline and the instruction of our kids. And now, first of all, it's stated negatively. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. We need to really think through this because it's easy to say, well, I don't want to bum my kid out. I don't want to make my kid mad, so I'm not really going to do any discipline. It's not what he's saying here. When he's saying, do not provoke your children to anger, what Paul is challenging dads with is this, that their style of parenting would not, uh, that their discipline would not be so harsh or so unfair that it would cause their kids to be embittered against them. Don't mean you can't be tough. It means that you don't want to be overly harsh and overly unfair to where the kids just, they don't see the reasoning behind it. They don't get it. They don't have to agree with you. I'm not saying that. I'm saying we need to be careful in how we're, we're parenting. Um, we need to discipline in a way that promotes relationship because when they get older, that's how, that's how we'll have an influence over them, not through they have to obey us anymore because they don't. As, as those stages of parenting you know change as their ages change as they grow up it moves from their obedience to us to then we start infu- we we influence we impact them through the influence we have on them and so if we want to have that we got to get this down right at the beginning discipline in a way that promotes relationship and then here's the positive part bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the lord and if we wanted to break down that, the discipline is more the corrective, the punishment, and the instruction leads more to the, the verbal encouragement and the teaching. And so, but this is how we're, we're focused. Discipline, mainly correction, and we've got to control our children. You don't just let them run wild and figure out the teachers or society or the police. They'll, they'll put the limits. They'll control our responsibility to control our children, and point them to do right. And there's different ways of doing that. But Proverbs, Proverbs is filled, which is a wisdom book, is filled with tips, advice on parenting. For example, Proverbs 13, 24 says, He who withholds his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. That is a controversial statement in the world we're living in today. Because it's talking about corporal punishment, physical punishment, what we would call spanking. Spanking is not child abuse. As a matter of fact, you could probably make the argument just the opposite way, that if you don't ever physically discipline your child, that's probably worse for your kid than anything else. But spanking or any physical discipline, has to be done in the right way. It should never be done when, when, you're in, when you're angry or in a rage or anything. It can't be done that way. It always has to be proportional to the child's age and what's happened. And, and we'll learn about some of those things, don't want to take, although we have talked about that here. Don't want to take the time to do that with a parenting class coming up in a couple of weeks. So, but this word includes physical punishment. And, uh, and Pam and I use that same kind of punishment. And, and here, I think sometimes there are benefits to that that we don't think about. For example, we know, well, that is usually the most effective way to sometimes control our kids when we're running out of options. But I think there are other things, other factors that corporal punishment, uh, ways where, where that's a help to children that we don't usually think about, and here's one of them. When kids do wrong, when they've defied you and they've done something, and it's usually something they want to do and maybe they think it's a pretty cool thing to do, but they know they've defied you, they know they've broken relationship with you by doing something you didn't want, and then they know, say, if you find out. They feel guilty. Even though they wanted to do it and even though there's their choice to do it, if they know it was wrong or they know that it defied you, they feel guilty. Physical punishment is actually a way for them not to feel guilty anymore and to restore a relationship. You see, when kids feel guilty because they've done something wrong, they should feel guilty. When people don't feel any guilt for anything they do wrong, we call that person a psychopath. Kids should feel guilty when they do things that are wrong, and they also know that That if it's something that you didn't want them to do or you told them not to do or they disobeyed you, it creates a barrier between you and them, a barrier in your relationship. And so physical punishment could be a way for you to restore the relationship without just winking at their disobedience, without just saying, oh, that's okay, don't worry about it, and becoming a permissive parent. What you can do is actually give them punishment, and then after the punishment, their guilt, they've paid for it, so they don't have to feel guilty anymore. And now that thing is not a barrier between you and your child and your relationship, so your relationship is, distro- is reconnected. This is why a lot of times when we spank our kids, when it's all over and they already know they've paid the punishment and it's all done, and now they don't have to feel guilty anymore, they will come sometimes and instinctively give you a hug. Well, why that? They know they're not... They know the punishment is over, and I'm not saying they do this every single time. So, if you're a mom going, well, I spanked my kid the other day, and they didn't give me, oh, it wasn't, it doesn't always happen, but it happens a lot. And I think the way that that happens a lot is because kids instinctively feel that, oh, now I don't have to feel guilty, and now we're okay again because I paid the price. I paid the punishment. So we're good now. That's removed. The, The slate is clean. I have a clean slate now. We're good. So in that way, physical punishment relieves a child of guilt and makes a right way for our relationship them to be restored in honesty without just kind of, you know, without just kind of letting them have a pass on their wrongdoing, which is not a good thing. So, and a lot of times I don't think we think about that. When, when we come to punishment, because it's a last resort, a lot of times parents will say, well, when do I punish? Mine? What's the line? er, How do I know when to physically punish them or when to do something else? Um, You know, they didn't put their bike up, so I took their bike away for two days, or whatever. And, And you're always trying to look for something that fits the crime. But basically, there are three areas that you know you have to discipline. And that is direct disobedience. When you say to do something, they just look you in the eye and say, no, it's time. You know, I'm just telling you disobedience, disrespect. Hey, when child starts lipping off to mom, that needs to be dealt with, preferably by dad. That needs to happen. Uh, Disobedience, disrespect, and dishonesty. If your children are lying to you, you've got to deal with that, because in order to have a right relationship, you have to have honesty. So, those, those are some tips there. But when we're disciplining a child, actually when they're younger, we try to side with the child against the disobedience. It, here, here, that sounds weird. But here's what I mean. you probably already done that without even knowing what that's, that was. But that's where when, you, when a child's done something, we're never punishing in anger. And so we're able to say, oh, Johnny, you did that. Well, you know you're not supposed to do that. And now daddy has got to punish you. And, and that way, it's like you're siding with your child. We're in relationship, but now we have to deal with something that's happened wrong. And now here's the punishment. And now when the punishment is over, everything's okay now. And, and you don't have to feel bad anymore. It's over. And so we side with our children against disobedience if, uh, obedience if, that, um, if the situation allows for that. Discipline, again, it's about reestablishing the relationship, because your relationship is key, and that's what you're going to use to influence as they get older. So we always try to creatively figure out a discipline, a punishment that will mend or strengthen our relationship ties. And so that's time with or or whatever that we figure out what's going to build our relationship stronger, and we use that. So that's discipline. Then the other positive part is he says instruction. So, instruction is mainly about teaching them the right, the right way versus the wrong way. Hey, here's the wrong, here's the right, and getting them to jump into that. Proverbs speaks that. There's a bunch of Proverbs, but another proverb uh, speaks to that, says Proverbs 22, six says, train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Parents, if… and, and the modern research is in on this. If parents parent with godly values consistently and display that kind of a life, uh, they consistently display those values in their own life, there is a super, super high chance that your kids, even if they rebel for a time in their teenage years or in their 20s, that they come back to those same values, or they come back to recognizing that relationship with God. And and so statistics just bear that out, but that's what we were told through Scripture— 3,500 3, years ago. True. We must instruct our kids. Really, the whole point here is if you're a believer, it's to instruct your kids on how to follow Christ. And you do that by example. You do that by teaching and instruction, but also you do that by example. And there's a, 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 a transition between heavy discipline and instruction and then as they get older into their teen years, late teen years, then it's all by influence. And, and the, the season has passed for that other stuff. Obviously, physical punishment ends, you know, about puberty. And you go back beyond this and you're influencing them toward the right thing. Now, if we get discipline right, that influence will work. Now, a couple things. got, got some tough things to say to parents. Number one... If you're married, the best thing you can do for your kids, stay married. Um, and I know if, there's a lot of people here that, that, that are parenting and you're not married, and you know, I get that, that life's messy, and even Jesus says there's reason for divorce, adultery, Matthew 19. So I'm not saying that. But if you're together, the best thing you can do for your kids is to stay together. Um, just here in the last week, I was talking to a man, not a believer, it was at, late at night in, in a barn, and I was saying this very thing to him, that, and trying to explain this, because people hear the opposite. In our culture, it kind of buzzes around that kids will be better off in a one-parent home where there's no fighting, they'll be better off there than they will in a two-parent home where there's fighting. That actually came from psychologists who started saying that in the 70s. And now, no responsible psychologist says that anymore. And the reason is, we've done study after study after study, and some of them longitudinal studies, meaning studies over decades, that show when two people divorce, when parents divorce, Their children are worse off in every way you could measure a child's well-being, in every single way. So psychologists no longer can responsibly say that that's true. It's not true. But that myth lingers in our culture today. After a divorce, kids are worse off financially. They're worse off with their grades. They're worse off with their sense of security. They're worse off for modeling how to do relationships. They're worse off in every single way that you can measure a child's well-being. So that was not true. It never was true. But people keep saying it today. And Not that this man was saying divorce. I mean, it was just, uh, it was just came up in the context about fighting for your marriage. If you're married... The best thing you do for your kids is stay together. And then the next thing is, another tip, especially when your kids get older, you need to stay engaged with your children in conversation. Uh, because this is just a way we share life. If, you, if you're a parent, maybe you've noticed that when they're little, they're just like yak boxes. They're telling us about every little thing that happened in their life. You know, well, yeah, I went over here, and actually Aria comes to my house, and I have a, uh, a cow hide on a wall down in my basement, and so we go down and pet, she calls it petting the cow. We go pet the cow, and we do some other stuff. You know, but if somebody comes over, she tells everybody, this is what we did, you know, we did this and this. But if you'll notice, sometimes as kids get older, like they hit junior high or early high school, and all of a sudden, they ain't saying nothing. And then you're going, what, what's going on? Well, just keep engaged conversationally, and the way you do that as a parent is not overreact to what they're telling you, because here's what happens: you're used to them about them telling you all about their day. But they're little kids; nothing shocking happens. But then they hit middle school or high school, and they start talking about their day, and they start talking about stuff. You're going, "Whoa! Your your friend did what? Your friend said what? It's that kind of thing." And when you overreact, then you tend to start lecturing, which ends the conversation. And then after a 30-minute lecture, your child's going, well, sorry, I brought that up. And then they learn on that ride home from school or wherever not to share everything because they don't want to have that kind of a confrontational conversation. So here's what I'm saying. So in order to promote conversation, which is a way we share life, don't overreact or maybe just don't react. Let them say their piece, and while you're mentally going, Well, that's wrong, whoa, that's a red flag, whoa, n- never let them hang around that kid again. You know, when you're thinking all those things, circle back, don't, don't hit it right then to shut off the conversation, let the conversation flow, then circle back later, maybe at the end of that conversation, well, what do you think about that? Or you circle back around, and you, you look for those teaching moments where you're able to teach about those red flags that you just heard about, don't overreact. And that's a way for you to stay engaged in your teenager's life where they feel like they can talk to you about anything. Now, the amazing thing and what I've learned and all, um, all of us who have parenting kids and that season is kind of over, what you're left with is, is the stunning knowledge of how fast time flies and how fast that window of opportunity goes. I I mean, you're thinking 18 years. You know, when when you're 25, that sounds like an eternity. But when you're in your 50s, you're like, wow, what happened? That's over. Take every advantage to use this time, or you will regret it. Put in the time. It's just a season, and then it's over. Don't forget that. Love self-sacrificially. Put in the time required. And I know, I know parents, you're pulled in 10, ten different ways. I know you're, you're trying to provide for your kids. You're trying to, you know, run a household for your kids. Maybe you're trying to care for your elderly parents. You know, you got all this stuff going on that's pulling you. Do not neglect this area. This area is key. It's life or death for your kids. Tune in and make it happen. The most important thing we do as parents, as a Christian, is to bring our kids up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And by the way, parents, that's your job. Parents, that's not primarily the youth pastor's job. That's primarily your job. The youth pastor's there to help you. The youth pastor's there to be a friend and authority to your kid that's saying the same thing you're saying so your kids don't think you're insane. The youth pastor's the one going, well, yeah, that's actually right. You're supposed to obey him. But that's crazy. Well, yeah, that, that may not be what you think is right, but you're supposed to obey him. And, and that's what God's telling us as parents. And dads, we are to take the lead. We're to take the lead. We're to set the pace. We're to lead our family in, in what we're doing. Now, Willa mentioned a verse Uh, Joshua 24 15, which is a great verse, and uh, and, and we we quote it and use it all the time. There's a little bit larger context. That was part of the verse, and I'd like to, that's the best part of the verse, but let me read the rest of it to you. Here's Joshua. They've come into this new land that God's provided for them, a land that was already promised to Abraham that he was already in, and now they're circling back and coming back in. And as they do that, there's a mess or battles or fighting these other cultures who who don't follow God and are pagans and do child sacrifices and everything else. And then they get there and they they start having some success. And then there's this whole thing about, are are we going to kind of adopt the gods of this country, which is what they did back then? Are we going to adopt the gods that everybody else around us have? Or, or are we going to do something different? Or the gods that the, peop, that the Egyptians had before us who, who were masters over us, or what? So that's the context. Here's what Joshua says. If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, because that's what they're talking about, not serving God, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you're living but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And, and Will is right. Every parent has to make this decision. Every single parent and every parent that's a couple doing parenting together, you have to make this decision, what gods are we going to follow? Are we going to follow the gods of our culture? Is, is that what we're chasing? Or are we sticking with the one true God? We have to make this decision and then we have to be intentional about the way we parent according to that decision. And let me say, for those of you who are maybe thinking, wow, I'm kind of new to this. My parents weren't Christians. I haven't been a Christian very long. I hope I get this right. My kids are half grown. You know, all this. Here's what I'm telling you. As you strive to follow Christ, and you ask, He will give you the wisdom and the strength to lead your family in the right way. And with God's help, you will have the opportunity to change your family's trajectory and change your family's history to focus them on God. That's what God can and will do for you as you seek to follow Him. And then maybe the most important thing, maybe job one as a parent is to recognize God as your Father, that you get that right. You know, all through Scripture, the number one illustration of God uh, teaching us about how we relate to Him is parent-child. And so, we all realize that we have a Father in heaven who created us, made us, and wants relationship with us, but we've all broken that relationship. We've all rebelled. We've all disobeyed Him and went on to do what we want to do. And in essence, what we're saying is, God, don't need you in my life. I'll be running my life, and I'll be doing what I think is right, and I don't think it's so bad. And so, we live our own life. But because of that, because God… And, and God's loving us that whole time. God's loving and He's just, and He says, you know, the, those wrongs that I told you not to do, you have to be punished for those, or, or there's no justice in the universe. I have to do that. It's part of my character. And that's exactly the way we would want God to be. But because of this, we're all disconnected to God. We've all broken our relationship with with our true Father God and we're living our own lives and God keeps loving us and we're heading for this punishment which is separation from God forever which is we get for an eternity exactly what we wanted all our life. God, stay out of my life. But because He still loves us and He still wants a relationship with us, He sends His Son, His only Son, to come and live as a human being, which He did perfectly without any sin against the Father, and then He voluntarily gave up His life to pay our penalty for our rebellion against God. And then God offers us reconciliation just out of love, and we we can't earn it. There's nothing we can do to fix it. He says, Jesus Christ, my one and only Son, has paid your personal penalty for sin, come back to me, and I'll forgive you. And we do that by calling out to God in faith, calling out to God as we trust that what Christ did for us is sufficient to pay for all of our sins, past, present, and future, and then we are reconciled to God forever. We're not perfect. We still have our struggles, but we are reconciled to God forever, that's what God offers all of us.